1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Ray Paget, who wrote the book, I'm Your Fan, The Songs of Leonard Cohen. Welcome, Ray.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So your book is a 33 and a third book, and we've done a lot of work with authors there. And one of the things I think I find fascinating and and our listeners as well is they give you guys a lot of room. So I always have the standard first question, give us your pitch to 33 and a third about this book.
0: So the one sentence version would basically be, I'm going to use one tribute album to write about the history of tribute albums generally. And the slightly longer version is that you can branch out really widely from there. So mine is, you know, ostensibly about this Leonard Cohen tribute album, and maybe half of it is specifically about the Leonard Cohen tribute album, but half of it is really just about, you know, using that as a lens and a window to look at the history. of Tribute albums generally, I don't know exactly what about my pitch they responded to, but you know, I've read a bunch of the books and the ones I like are often the ones that start with the one album and then veer in some unexpected directions.
1: You also have a website that's dedicated to the concept of cover songs. It's called Cover Me, and that was also the name of your first book on that subject as well. You write that you, quote, might have listened to more tribute albums than anyone alive. That's quite impressive, but what is it about this form that you love?
0: I don't know if it's impressive. I'm not sure there's all that much competition for that particular title. But yeah, I love tribute albums. I I mean, I just kind of find the whole format fascinating. Like it's it's unusual in the way it works in sort of the music world in that it can bring a whole bunch of disparate artists, bands, singers, you know, often from many different genres who will share next to nothing in common except a love and appreciation for whatever artists they're tributing. And, you know, Lord knows plenty of tribute albums don't work very well, but a lot do. And the, I think the potential is just kind of almost unique in the you know, world of recorded music.
1: Well, as you mentioned, your your book is about Leonard Cohen in this tribute record, and he, of course, is now revered. But at the time of of the launch of this record, and this is pre Hallelujah, that wasn't the case, was it?
0: No. So this album, this tribute album, I write about, came out in 1991, and at that time, he was kind of becoming an old exact. You know, he still had plenty of fans from the 60s and 70s, but he his fans were aging with him, and. He was on the verge of just sort of being, you know, not forgotten, but, you know, slowly forgotten, you might say. He had released Hallelujah, you know, a few years prior, but it hadn't done anything at the time until this tribute album.
1: Well, in fact, you tell a great story with Walter Yetnikoff of CBS and what he said to Cohen when he brought forth the album, various positions in 1984 that included Hallelujah. Can you tell our listeners what Walter said to Cohen?
0: Yeah, he told him you know, Leonard, we know you're great, but we don't know if you're any good. (laughs) Meaning you can be a genius, but if the genius isn't selling records for the record label, you know, it only goes so far. And at the time, Leonard Cohen records were not moving. And in fact, he told him that in the context of refusing to release his album with Hallelujah on it in America. That's how poorly the previous records had done.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing story. So who was behind I'm Your Fan?
0: So one reason I chose it, you know, as sort of the the tribute album to revolve the book around was because it came from such an unusual source. It was two editors of a French music magazine called Les Inroctibles, excuse my French mispronunciation there, but basically they were just big Leonard Cohen fans and they were kind of the only music magazine going in France. And as a result, they interviewed a lot of, you know, pretty famous people who were you know had tour dates going through France or whatnot and wanted to promote them. And they noticed that all these musicians were talking about how much they loved Leonard Cohen. And they loved Leonard Cohen. And so they conceived of the idea of this tribute album.
1: You also open your book talking about the photography and the art direction of the Cohen tribute album and how it's an insider's reference. And as an art director, I love this story. What's with the bananas?
0: So – when this tribute album is titled I'm Your Fan, Leonard Cohen fans will get the reference because his previous album in 1988 was titled I'm Your Man. And on the cover of that album, Leonard Cohen is pictured eating a banana. And so as a result, in sort of the you know CD liner notes when this tribute album came out, they photographed almost every artist with a banana. So you've got the Pixies with bananas and John Cale with his banana. And various other groups. And, you know, it's a cute thing, but I think the bigger point is it shows just how much fans these people were and just how much they were trusting, you know, sort of listeners to get the reference, even though it was never spelled out why these people all had bananas.
1: (laughs) You note, though, that most tribute albums sometimes ignore these details.
0: Yeah. So this is 91. And in the sort of history of tribute albums, it's kind of a turning point. They're transitioning from the 80s when they are similar to this one, Labors of Love by fans. You know, record labels are involved, but it's, it's some fan like Hal Wilner putting these things together. And then as the 90s unfold, they become these sort of major label cash grabs. And there are still plenty of great tribute albums. But yeah, some of them are just like, let's get a bunch of famous people to cover someone else famous and see how many copies of the records we can sell.
1: Yeah, and Stereogum, which curated several tribute albums, called the form, quote, one of the most universally derided forms in pop music, defined by inconsistency, unpredictability, and low expectations.
0: And that reputation basically comes from this 90s period, I think, where you have, you know, let's get a whole bunch of ska bands to cover Duran Duran, or let's get Hootie and the Blowfish to cover Led Zeppelin, things that don't make sense on paper, don't make any more sense when you hear them. But we're just, you know, labels sort of throwing a bunch of ideas at the wall and seeing what's stuck. And yeah, so I think tribute albums these days still have a rather uh, checkered reputation at best.
1: Yeah, we'll get into that. That's a fun discussion. But you mentioned Hal Wilner. I remember him from Stay Awake, which was one of my first tribute albums and and still a great record, really interesting and defines kind of his unique approach to curating those tributes. Can you talk about his approach?
0: So Hal Wilner more or less invented the tribute album single handedly. I interviewed him uh, before his tragic passing this spring, and he sort of basically said that you know he was a fan of variety shows growing up. He even ended up working uh, on Saturday Night Live for decades, and he was trying to sort of come up with a similar approach in recorded form—the idea of getting a bunch of different artists to you know cover one artist. And in his case, he just sort of followed his esoteric passions at first. Like the first one he did was. A tribute to Nino Rota, who was Fellini's uh, composer, which is you know a pretty obscure name, um, but he ended up getting people like Blondie to do it, and then he did you know Stay Awake, Disney One, and various others through the '80s, and it was all kind of you know just whatever Hal Wilner was personally interested in, um, and he had that lane to himself for a few years. Yeah, you know, I forgot Emma
1: was re-released by Hannibal, which was part of the Reicherdist label when I worked there, and that was a really early one and great cover art. And, uh, and, you know, it had that kind of intellectual, I guess, or stylistic approach. Terry Tolkien was another guy who was likewise committed, and he was behind the Neil Young Bridge School Benefit and Tribute album. Afterwards, he started to put together a Grateful Dead tribute album, Dedicated, And got shafted by some of the band and their label. And I was a bit shocked as a a fan of the dead and disappointed to read this in your book.
0: Yeah. So Terry Tolkien was one of the first to pick up the baton from Hal Wilner. You know, Hal Wilner for much of the 80s was kind of doing it solo. And then various other people caught on. And so Tolkien does this big Neil Young tribute you mentioned called The Bridge that's very successful. It has sonic youth um, and various people in 89. And so he says, all right, I'll do another one. Uh, he's a fan of The Grateful Dead. Um, so he he got various bands to agree to cover The Grateful Dead. And he was working with The Grateful Dead themselves in, in, in initial stages. It hadn't gotten all that far. And then I when, you know, when I spoke to him, he basically said that he was working away, but he started noticing his calls to their record label weren't getting returned. And then he couldn't get in touch with the band. And then it just sort of – there was silence for a while. And then eventually he got – you know, some sort of cease and desist. And he didn't know why. And then sure enough, a couple of years later, a different tribute album to the Grateful Dead came out with someone else uh, behind the wheel, which he was very bitter about. And he never did another tribute album after that.
1: Wow. And they even took his name, Dedicated, I believe. And the Dead gave it to Ralph Saul. And he would go on to produce a lot of tribute albums. I think this was his first one. and, And he was pretty new to the industry. Why did the Dead pick him at this
0: juncture? So he was at that point a music supervisor for movies. He was in the film industry and he was a big deadhead. And he apparently entirely independent of Terry Tolkien, but he, you know, sort of pitched the similar idea. And it's a little murky why they chose him, but he certainly with his movie thing had plenty more industry connections than they did. In my book I pick a few sort of figureheads how well there's the 80s guy who invents it. Ralph Saul is kind of the 90s guy who makes them huge. Dedicated was his first, but then he would go on to do a number of others, and they were, you know, really big business.
1: He had a very different philosophy in assembling these albums than, say, Hal Wilner or Terry Tolkien, didn't he?
0: Yeah, I mean, the... When I say they're a big business, that wasn't some sort of freak accident. His philosophy was that you had to have artists as big as the artist being tributed doing the covers. So for instance, his most recent one was a tribute to Paul McCartney a few years ago. And as I say in the book, you know, it's got Bob Dylan, Brian Wilson, BB King, and those are just the bees. So he ends up with these sort of superstar albums in the nineties and and through today. But yeah, that's obviously not anything like Hal Wilner's sort of more eccentric approach of just getting bands he loves.
1: I thought you very accurately noted one of the problems with this philosophy of having the artist as big as the subject. Do you want to explain that?
0: Well, one of the problems is it would eliminate 99% of the tribute albums that exist. I mean, you pretty much couldn't do a tribute album to the Beatles because how many bands have been as big as the Beatles in rock history, right? Right. I mean, his philosophy is his philosophy, but I sort of disagree. I think it's wonderful to have obscure bands covering famous bands, famous bands covering obscure bands. He's he's done a great job putting these together, but even even his take like a decade sometimes. Because if you're trying to get artists as famous as McCartney, <laughs> that's no easy task to fill up a CD or two with that. You also
1: note that the world of tribute albums has a gender problem.
0: Yeah, so... If you look at who's being tributed, it's very much of the sort of traditional classic rock canon, which, you know, is a broader problem than tribute albums, but that's pretty white and it's pretty male. The reason I point that out is not just to sort of point at the bigger problem, but because it's a little frustrating that tribute albums, a format where the whole goal is to like lift up and celebrate other artists, wouldn't be a little bit more at the forefront of looking beyond, you know, the most obvious, you know, (laughs) old white guys. But that is sort of vast majority of tribute albums is not, you know, not looking beyond the sort of most obvious canon picks
1: you know like all things there's an outlier and in this case it seems to be juliana hatfield who seems all in on participating in the concept even though she does not necessarily love the music or the band of some of these projects she's in on
0: that was maybe the biggest surprise at one point early on i went through all the tribute albums i have which you know is hundreds and I figured out who were on the most tribute albums. And there were two or three artists who were just on a ton. One was Lost Lobos, one was Lucinda Williams, and one was Juliana Hatfield. And she had the added benefit of there are these various producers I write about. And so I decided to interview her, write a chapter about her, assuming that she's going to say, oh, I covered Big Star because I love Big Star. And I covered this cartoon song. I grew up on the cartoon or whatever. Turns out it was much different, but also more interesting than that. And it shows just why artists could sign on for tribute albums in some case there's a little money involved in some case it's a chance to you know work the labels lined up a producer in some cases a favor but in a few cases she was a fan of the band but more often than not she was on these tribute albums for bands she either didn't know super well or didn't even like which i found pretty funny and surprising very interesting
2: hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds
1: We're speaking with Ray Padgett, whose latest book is I'm Your Fan, The Songs of Leonard Cohen. Let's talk about some of the artists and the songs that were chosen for this record. It's an incredibly wide array of artists. The record opens with First We Take Manhattan by R.E.M., which is one of Leonard's better known tunes.
0: Yeah, and part of that is due to the R.E.M. version. Um, You know, it didn't have the massive reach that Hallelujah would end up having, but they were a band that appeared on a lot of the on a lot of tribute albums during their day and especially during this period, you know, the early nineties. They popped up on Richard Thompson and just a whole array. And yeah, theirs is one of my favorites. It's a perfect example of a band sort of making a song their own. They picked a song that was close enough to their style that it would fit, but they just made it. If you listen to it, you'd kind of just think it was an REM song and a really good one at that.
1: Hmm. Suzanne was another big hit for Leonard Cohen. And I thought Jeffrey Oriema provided a really interesting cover.
0: Yeah, until Hallelujah with this album suzanne was leonard cohen's most covered song by far and of course if you're covering a song that's already been covered hundreds of times that's sort of a bit of a challenge to make your own but he yeah his version's great i hadn't been super familiar but he was a ugandan musician who was very closely tied with peter gabriel he was one of the first artists on peter gabriel's label they collaborated for years and years he lived in france at the time but he brings a little sort of african flavor to it and uh, i think it's a real sort of under the radar standout of the album
1: Yeah, I agree. And it's funny, you mentioned that when you choose a better known title and how to make it your own, and if that's the right approach, there are two uh, songs that I really, really liked, Bird on a Wire and Chelsea Hotel by uh, Lloyd Cole. And they're beautiful, but very faithful renditions here.
0: Yeah, and that can, you know, that can be sort of a double edged sword, because if you're doing too faithful a rendition on a cover, You know, one kind of wonders what what the point is. I'll listen to the original. But in some cases, including some of these albums, just the fact that they're just so different vocally than Leonard Cohen, even if they are mirroring the original arrangement to some degree, it ends up sounding pretty different.
1: You know, one thing that you almost never see, and controversially it happens here, one song gets covered twice. What can you tell us about the song Tower of Song and why it gets two renditions on this record?
0: Yeah, that's kind of the ultimate tribute album no-no is having uh, the same song on there twice. And sure enough, the producers did not want the same song on there twice. What they did, you know, as similar to what many tribute album producers did is they got their artists and they had the artists pick the songs. And then when an artist picked a certain song, they let everyone else know, hey, this song is now off the table. So, you know, you got to pick something else. And so this happened with uh, Tower of Song. Robert Forster picked it. And so they said to everyone else who hadn't decided yet, hey, don't pick Tower of Song. Well, it turned out that Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds had been considering Tower of Song. And so, you know, confrontational as they are, instead of saying, ah, nuts, all right, we've got to figure something else out. They said, well, the hell with that. We're going to do it anyway, which I think kind of works out because the first version is, you know, it's relatively faithful in spirit, the original, and the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds is just totally off the wall. So it's a rare case when I think you can have two covers of the same song on Tribute Album. It's certainly not something that some people mostly try to avoid.
1: You uh, politely call it off the wall. I would have called it batshit crazy.
0: It is. It is pretty (laughs) batshit. You know, they basically covered it in a million different styles in this sort of endless long marathon set where Nick Cave would yell, do it like John Lee Hooker. And then they just try their best or do it like Johnny Cash. And they edited it down to whatever it is, five minutes for the album. But you can hear on YouTube, like a 30 plus minute version where he's just yelling out things. And I actually kind of prefer that one. The edits are are jarring on the album. I kind of prefer the long, loud jam.
1: And and the edits do have the different stylistic periods, which makes it a bit. Kind of difficult. Yeah, to listen you'd to.
0: think they would have just picked one, right? Like right. the idea was, we'll play it five different ways, and then at the end, we'll say, "All right, well, this one was the best. Use that one." But instead, they they picked all of them.
1: <laughs> Typical Nick Cave, I would guess. Finally, of course, there's Hallelujah, and that song would come to define Leonard Cohen to many, many people, and probably be covered just less than a billion times.
0: Yeah, and then that's I think this album's primary claim to fame at this point. As I said, Leonard Cohen had released Hallelujah. You know, the better part of a decade prior, and it hadn't done anything. And in fact, his record label hadn't even bothered releasing the album with it on it in America. And so it took this tribute album to make it famous. You know, John Cale of the Velvet Underground heard Leonard Cohen sing the song in a concert, and that's how he decided to cover it on this album. Then later, Jeff Buckley would hear this album cover John Cale's cover of the Leonard Cohen song. You know, by now, it's Leonard Cohen's most covered song by far, but it might not have been without this album.
1: I found it interesting, you write, that John Cale asked Cohen to fax him the lyrics, and uh, he got a little bit more than he was expecting, didn't
0: he? Got a lot more than he was expecting. (laughs) Again, because the album wasn't available, he heard this song in concert. He liked it, but he, he couldn't find the recording. He didn't have it, so he said, hey... You know, the, the producers, the French producers, this thing, put them in touch. And he said, hey, can you send me the lyrics? I want to cover your song. And the fax machine starts spitting out 15 pages of lyrics because Leonard Cohen had written way more lyrics than ended up in the final version. He'd been writing the song, you know, working on the song for years and years. And so John Cale selected a group of lyrics that are mostly different than the original Leonard Cohen lyrics. And in later years, Leonard Cohen would perform some of those John Cale picked lyrics live himself.
1: You'd mentioned Jeff Buckley, and that, that was the one that really put that song over the top. But there were so many versions, it became ubiquitous. And, um, you know, from Jeff Buckley, which was probably the greatest selling version, to Kate McKinnon dressed up as Hillary Clinton on SNL doing, you know, a very moving solo rendition. Do you have a favorite version of this song?
0: I have a lot of favorite versions, but one, I listened to a decent amount in my book. Actually, two that are sort of similar. You know, a lot of people, you think Leonard Cohen, you think lyricist, right? But I think one reason that Hallelujah translates so well across all these different platforms, genres, sounds, et cetera, is the music, the melody. And there are instrumental versions, one by a ukulele player named Jake Shimabukuru and one by a uh, sort of psychedelic guitarist named Delicate Steve that don't even include the lyrics, and are still powerful. So, you know, for people who are kind of burned out on hearing Hallelujah covered every five minutes, I recommend those, because it's kind of refreshing to just hear it instrumentally.
1: Yeah, very cool. I will say the one thing I learned in, in your book is that it's, you know, with the title of Hallelujah, you might think it's more of a spiritual song, but it's actually more carnal than that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and especially, you know, the John Cale version. L- Leonard's original, you know, really sort of is a 50-50 mix of the uh, secular and the sacred, you might say. And John Cale had, you know, no such divine, you know, aspirations. So he said, when he looked at all those verses, he just he, he dumped all the most of the ones about saints and religion and God and just picked out the, uh, the sexiest ones.
1: And there it is. What did Leonard Cohen think of this tribute album?
0: He loved it. He was honored uh, beyond belief. Because he wasn't really involved in making it. The producers had sort of gotten his permission up front. He said, you know, yeah, okay, whatever. Sounds good. And then he said in an interview, you know, he didn't think he'd ever hear from them again. And what really struck him, he did interviews about it. And he, you know, he talked about it up until nearly the end of his life. He brought it up on stage in his final tours. And what he kept coming back to is not only liking the covers, but the fact that they were of these younger generations, you know, you have R.E.M., you have the Pixies, you have all these bands that in the early 90s are just sort of breaking And he basically gave it credit for saving his career because it reached all these young people and made him cool in a way that he was not, but obviously continued, you know, up through the end of his life, even till the present. Young people love Leonard Cohen now, but they didn't before, you know, this tribute album.
1: You know, not surprisingly for an artist with such a deep catalog, Cohen would receive another tribute album years later in Tower of Song, the aforementioned song. He was a bit more involved in that one, but it did not receive the praise of I'm Your Fan. Can you tell us why? or anything about that project which differed?
0: Yeah, so this is a good example of what we were talking about of kind of the yin and yang of the tribute album world. On the one hand, you have I'm Your Fan, which is by fans, just a total labor of love that ends up doing better than anyone expected. On the other hand, you have this one you mentioned, Tower of Song, which came out a few years later, and this was entirely devised by Cohen's manager at the time um, and his record label, basically as a way to sell a bunch of albums and you know get Leonard Cohen's name out there. And so like a lot of these big 90s major label tribute albums did, they just basically got the most famous names they could. And some of, I like some of the covers on it, but you also have people like Billy Joel, who I like Billy Joel, but he, I don't think he has any uh, known affinity for Leonard Cohen's music. And so it ends up being this grab bag. And the funniest little anecdote I learned researching this for the book is that because Leonard Cohen's manager was behind it, it was being made while you know he was in seclusion at the monastery, but she dragged him down from the monastery for a couple of days to basically make phone calls to his famous friends to get them <laughs> on the album. He was too polite to ever say it himself. But it was pretty clear, if you read between the lines and subsequent interviews he did, that even he didn't really like this album all that much.
1: Yeah, All Music's review said it was likely devised by the marketing department rather than elite artists who had an affinity for the artist's work, and I, I think that probably speaks volumes
0: i think that review probably meant it as a metaphor but it's almost literally true that it was devised by the marketing department
1: so you're the the tribute album guru do you put i'm your fan in the top five tribute albums
0: i'd probably put it in the top five i mean the thing the interesting thing with tribute albums and kind of one of the reason both that people say bad things about them but i like them is that they're all inconsistent even I'm Your Fan is not perfect from beginning to end. And so the mark of a good tribute album is a little different than the mark of a good regular album. I mean, an, ideally, a great album typically is greater than the sum of its parts, right? You, it has a bunch of great songs, but then they also build to something more. Because I think even a great tribute album, it kind of is the sum of its parts. As in, if most of the songs are good and there's only a few bad ones, then it's a good tribute album. And if most of them are bad and there's only a few good ones, then it's a bad tribute album. But I think the, the sort of hit-to-miss ratio on I'm Your Fan is certainly higher than it is on most tribute albums.
1: We're speaking to Ray Padgett, whose latest book on the 33 and a third imprint is I'm Your Fan, the songs of Leonard Cohen. The 90s, you've mentioned, would see a lot of resurgence of tribute albums. Why was that? Was it just, had it become just a cash cow for labels?
0: I mean, basically, yeah, it was a way of sort of, you know, marketing their commodities to a new audience would be the sort of cynical marketing way to phrase it if a label has i don't know the led zeppelin catalog say they say we want you know to get younger people into led zeppelin so let's get a whole bunch of artists that younger people like to cover led zeppelin then not only will we sell a bunch of copies of this tribute album but ideally then they'll start buying led zeppelin albums if the artists are good enough occasionally that works and i'm not saying those are all bad but that did become sort of the more cynical reasoning behind a lot of these tribute albums in the 90s
1: I thought Stereo Gum magazine had an interesting theory in that the CD broom also helped propel
0: that. It's a smart idea, and it sort of ties into what I was saying in the sense of when the CDs come out, all these labels are re-releasing all these classic albums, right? And so they're thinking of, you know, how do we monetize our back catalogs? And yeah, it tied into the tribute album in that way. And the other way it ties into the tribute album is that if you look at a lot of these tribute albums, especially from the 90s, you'll notice that they have one thing in common, which is that they run between about 70 and 80 minutes, which not coincidentally is the runtime of a CD and just shows you basically that they were packing on as many covers as they could, often without regard to you know whether they made sense together as a cohesive whole. And I think the
1: internet and streaming would also, you know, have a say in kind of the shelf life of some of these records and also which became popular because you you didn't have to listen to 70 or 80 minutes.
0: Yeah, I mean, streaming and the internet has been both good and bad for the tribute album. It's been good in the sense that it's been much easier for anyone to make tribute albums. Um, Cover Me, we do lists every year of the best albums and a lot of them were just made by random people, fans, whoever, you know, and they're up on Bandcamp or wherever. But it's bad in the sense that, for one, a lot of the tribute albums that came out before streaming, including I'm Your Fan the one I wrote a whole book about, never made it to Spotify and Apple Music, and the reason is essentially because of money and effort. You know, if the deal was signed before streaming exists, they would have to go, you know, make a new deal. And they have to do that with all sorts of albums, you know, Nevermind or, or what the Beatles or whoever, but There, you're only working with one artist, and the artist is presumably already on your label or was at the time, whereas if it's a tribute album, you'd have to get new contracts with 20 different bands, most of whom probably weren't on your label to begin with. And as a result, and I think it's kind of a a small tragedy, a lot of these tribute albums, including the super famous influential ones, are not available via any legitimate streaming platform.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's just a different way of thinking. Stephen Doisner, he wrote the Stereo Gum magazine I referenced, uh, the article. And he imagined hate label heads and boardrooms thinking, what's the best way to maximize these commodities? I worked at labels. You work at music public relations. And I remember the first time I heard music referred to as product. And it wasn't, it didn't sit well.
0: Yeah. Um, I think the new version of that, which I hear a lot, is uh, the word product has been swapped for the word content. You know, you hear labels, managers, whoever, just wanting artists to churn out more content for social media or whatever. And it, it is a little dispiriting because like a song or an album takes as long to write and record as it's going to take. And so the idea that artists just need to like write more songs to sort of feed the beast of the internet, um, I think is a, a slightly cynical way to look at music, but it is these buzzwords that sort of come from labels and marketing departments. They do kind of make you a little bit cynical about the music industry.
1: Speaking of that cynical approach, could you pick a piece of art or content or
0: product that is your favorite tribute album? It's a good question. There are some that are relatively big business that I do actually really like. You know, One, for instance, is actually one of the relatively recent ones. It is a different Grateful Dead tribute album. It only came out a few years ago. It's called Day of the Dead. And it was this sort of big, splashy production. It it got practically every famous indie rock adjacent artist of the last decade to cover Grateful Dead songs. That's The National. That's Wilco. That's Courtney Barnett. it does like, I don't know, 50 songs or something. And something like that where you're throwing a whole lot of ideas against the wall, as I've said, is not necessarily something that's going to uh, deliver artistically but sometimes they do if the artists are good enough. And I actually think that one is one of the best tribute albums uh, of recent years. I'm
1: not sure if this is going to be easier or harder, but um, least favorite or, or perhaps biggest fail?
0: <laughs> there, ooh, that's, a, that's a real <laughs> race to the bottom. There's one that always has sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And to some degree, it's maybe the most successful tribute album ever in terms of sales. The asterisk is it's a little hard to Find out for sure, but as far as I can tell, this might be the most successful ever. It came out in uh, the mid '90s. It was a tribute album to the Eagles called Common Thread. It was produced by Ralph Saul, and it was a typical sort of big business thing of let's get every modern country superstar to cover the Eagles. And so, you know, this is the era where sort of pop country t- has really taken over. There's no, there's no outlaw country. There's no roots country. It's just Travis Tritt and various people like that. Um, and yeah, it's I think pretty schlocky and pretty sort of. I don't know if it's cynical. I think, you know, the people who put it together liked the Eagles, but it's basically just let's get as many famous people as we can. It was super successful. It definitely worked, but it is, I think, uh, not, a, not a great lesson.
1: Hmm. Well, this is clearly your jam. I'm reading your previous book, Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest songs of all time, and there's no shortage of fantastic stories. Can you come back and talk to us about that book after I finish it? Uh, yeah,
0: sure. I'd be happy to.
1: Uh, how about this? Can you give us a tease, uh, our listeners, a tease? Name either the artist or the song, but not both. That is one of your favorite cover songs.
0: One word Devo. There's
1: two that pop to mind that are both excellent. So <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank Ray Padgett, who is the author of a book, I'm Your Fan. The songs of Leonard Cohen on 33 and a Third. It's a great read. Uh, if you're a Leonard Cohen fan, you'll love it. If you like the ideas of cover albums, you'll love it. Thank you, Ray.
0: Thanks so much for having me. If
1: you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one of a kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, and all-music books podcast.